Uh, my name is Rob Jacobson. I'm the lead pastor of Restoration, and that just means that I was the first one that said vocationally, I'll say yes to Jesus to be called by God to this movement, to be this community of people, to restore, be restored by Jesus to restore what's broken in the world. And it's been a thrilling joyride of highs, lows, and everything in between along the way. The uh, thing that I am probably most excited about at the moment is that we're in this series called Love Work, which might be an oxymoron to some of you, but uh, that we believe that everybody is called by God, and there's no difference between sacred and secular. And so God might have something to say about your work. In fact, I would even go so far as to say God does have something to say about your work. So we are sort of pausing this series because we have a guest, my uh, church planting director, Pastor Mike Brown, is speaking to us about call, though. And the really cool thing is, is in this series called Love Work, we haven't really talked about what it means to have work as a calling So the question of the day is really, what does it mean to be called by God? We talked in the series about how work is good, how there are some problems with work, and how we can't let work overtake our whole lives, so we need to rest. And in the next couple weeks, we'll talk about what our motivation is for work and how we can bring our whole self to work. But today is really this day to, to sort of pause and question this idea of work and calling. And so with that, we start... Before Mike comes up, we're going to go into the scriptures to 1 Samuel 16. And we read a story of call. I just can't resist. My, my six, seven-year-old turns to me when Lucas says, we really don't want anyone to get hurt at the pumpkin carving competition. He goes, oh, right, like that's going to happen. <laughs> we're about Jesus and not hurting each other with knives. Wow, if you're new, that's our start. <laughs> Fortunately, God has something to say way beyond knives uh, today. So 1 Samuel 16, if you need a Bible or you'd like to follow along when Mike goes, um, you can raise your hand. Kiri will bring you one. If you don't have one, we'd love to just let that be our gift to you. 1 Samuel 16 says, And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel the prophet said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before me, or stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his height or his appearance. For the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. 
Jesse had then had Shema pass by, but the, Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing in health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the presence of the Lord came powerfully on David. And then Samuel went to Ramah. Pastor Mike. Thanks, Rob. Well, it is great to be with you today. Uh, I consider it a pleasure. I've worshipped with you before, but to have an opportunity to bring uh, you God's word today is, is a privilege. By the way, do you know how blessed you are to have that man as your pastor? Uh, he loves you deeply. I know this because we talk, so uh, he does. And by the way, on the pumpkin carving thing, just want to say, if anyone hears someone say, watch this, I would clear space around him. That's usually the precursor to something bad happening. So uh, little boys usually are great for that. Yeah. Or pastors, perhaps. No sharp objects for Pastor Rob. It'll be all right. Well, um, I'm going to ask you to bow with me in prayer before we begin. Father God, it is good to be in this place. Uh, Lord, your presence is here. You are here even before we arrived. And uh, you have prepared this place. And I ask that you would work through me, speak through me, help me to uh, get out of the way so that people can see you. Uh, use your word in a powerful way this morning. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, I did want to, before I jump into this, just mention too, I do represent uh, the Northwest Conference, which uh, for those of you who don't know fully what you're part of, um, we are about 150 churches in uh, North and South Dakota, Minnesota, Western Wisconsin, part of a broader denomination of close to 1,000 churches across the country. And we're now in, I think, 32 countries as well. But um, we, uh, I mentioned in the first service that uh, we have a dream and a goal to see at least five new churches planted each year for the next 10 years. Uh, so groups just like yours gathering in schools and community centers, um, some in garages and living rooms initially and all different sorts of locations. But uh, groups of people called to do what you're doing here. So it's, that's exciting to me because the kingdom is growing People are coming to faith. About better than half of the people that attend our new churches are uh, people who uh, haven't done this before, who were previously unchurched or disconnected from the church. So all that's very exciting to me, and I get to work with uh, pastors like Rob who get it and who are committed to uh, the broader kingdom, but also to all of you. So... Um, We'll jump in here to, the sto to uh, our story in Scripture. Before we do that, I want to share a, a personal story because I remember this day vividly. It stands out in my mind. It's like, do you know how the little movie playing in your brain 
and uh, you can see it just as, as clearly as if it were happening right now. And I remember it because the teacher blew the whistle and we all lined up out on the playground. And silently I was praying, please let me be chosen to be team captain. But when somebody else got selected, I cringed because I knew what was coming next. Because around me, all the other kids I, were thinking the same thing. Although at the time, of course, as a kid, you don't know it. You're so focused on what's happening with you that you, you don't realize that others are in the same place. But everybody knew who was going to be chosen first. Because I mean, every time we did this, Brian was chosen first. He was the biggest. He was the strongest. Always the first pick. And then Kevin was usually chosen next because Kevin was athletic and he was tall. And after that, it was a parade of the biggest and the fastest, the most athletic, chosen one by one until what was left were a lineup of these, these scrawny little kids like me, the misfits. The kids that nobody really wanted to choose, but because we had to choose up teams, everybody had to get selected. And then one by one, those kids were picked for the teams, and the line began to shrink. And the sweat began to trickle down the back of my neck as I hoped and I prayed that I wouldn't be chosen last again. See, it's no wonder that we grew up believing that what really matters is being the biggest, the fastest, the prettiest, because we grow up with those people constantly being chosen first receiving all the attention. They get all kinds of special advantages, at least in our minds. But that childhood ritual reinforces in our minds that appearance and ability are what matter most. And you know, growing up, I don't think changes that much. Really doesn't change that much, does it? Because look at print ads and TV. You know, we see this steady stream of advertising for diets and spas and exercise equipment and Botox injections and hair implants and the list goes on and on. All of these things designed to to, to hopefully improve us enough that we could make it in to that special club. You know, the, the, the elite, the people who get chosen first. See, the message really is this, isn't it, at the end of the day? What they're trying to communicate is you're not good enough. You're simply not good enough. You're not athletic enough or tall enough. You're not connected enough or rich enough. To ever break out of that childhood cycle of being chosen last. We're being told you just don't measure up. You don't fit in. If you just be like, and then fill in the blank, right, you'd be more acceptable. Has any, I, I won't ask for a show of hands. I'm guessing that for a lot of us, we've heard that before. And we've come to believe the message. It gets internalized, and we start believing you know, that we'll never be anything less than third string, B-squad, bench warmers for the rest of our days. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to guess that there's many in the room who have stood in front of the mirror and uh, wished that they could change some part. You wish you could change some part of your body as you stood and looked at yourself. You know that uh, advertising, by the way, is designed to create insecurity in us. It's how they get us to buy all that crap we don't really need. I was in marketing for 18 years, and, and I know that the, the goal is if they tell you that you're incomplete without it, you'll go out and buy all kinds of things. So you ever, once I, if, if you watch a car ad, 
recently. Maybe you've watched TV. Maybe you're, if you, if you uh, can DVR, maybe you just skip all the commercials. But if you watch commercials, if you watch a car ad, they don't show you the car. I mean, they don't pop the hood and show you the engine. They don't talk about, really, about features. What do they show you in a car commercial? Beautiful people, right? Getting in and out of their cars. Because they're going to tell you, if you drive that car, you're going to look rich and famous. You're going to look like those beautiful people in the, in the ad. If you buy a certain clothing, it's going to suddenly make you part of the in crowd. You're going to fit in if you just have the right labels on your clothing. I even saw a commercial for a women's deodorant that promised silky smooth underarms. I won't ask you ladies, but I wonder how many of you stay awake at night worrying if your underarms are smooth enough. Well, suddenly, women all over the country now are concerned because they're selling product, and so they're worrying that their armpits aren't smooth enough. And it's really crazy if you think about it. If you think about all of this stuff, it's a little over the top. But it feeds into that notion that somehow you are not good enough. So this morning, if you get nothing else, I want you to leave with the words I'm going to say next. I want you to take them home with you. I want you to repeat them to yourself every day before you get out of bed. And your spouse, I want you to say it out loud. Your spouse will think you're insane. But I don't care because it's important. I want you to be able to say that God chose me. God chose me, or God chooses you, is I think what's on the outline. But I want you to know God chose you. Scripture says God put us together in our mother's womb. He knit us together. He knew us even before we were born. And God does not make mistakes. See, you are who God intended you to be. God doesn't choose teams the way we did in grade school. Thank heaven. He chooses all of us first. Now, if you look at the passage this morning, we have King Saul who's fallen out of favor with God. God's uh, said he's going to find a replacement king. And he sends Samuel to Bethlehem, and, and he's going to uh, meet up with Jesse and Jesse's family. And, uh, and, and out of that group, God says, one of the sons of Jesse will be the next king. Now, I think it's interesting, by the way, um, since it's God, now couldn't he have told Samuel ahead of time which one, right? But he didn't do that. So I think it's instructive to watch what happens and plays out in the passage. Because he gets there and he met Jesse, he, he, he wanders in and it says in the passage that the first, uh, he got there and he says, Samuel saw Eliab, who was the oldest, and thought to himself, again, this is the prophet of God, and he even fell prey to what we've just been talking about, because he says, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He's the oldest. He's tall. He's handsome. This is the guy, right? And then it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, no, it's not him. It's not him. And then, and then it says to, uh, in the passage that uh, Jesse called Abinadab his next son, and then Shema, and then one by one, seven sons all paraded before the prophet. And every single time, God said, nope, not that one, not that one. 
Now, it didn't mean God didn't accept them or choose them, but for this role as king, God had something in mind, and I think there was a lesson he was trying to communicate, even to the prophet, because Israel had made some really lousy choices, and Saul wasn't a particularly good choice as king. So they all go through, and then Samuel says, what, is this it? None of these guys are intended to be king. Is this it? And then Jesse, David's own dad, says, oh yeah, there's David. But he's just a shepherd and he's out tending the sheep. His own dad forgot to invite him to the party with the prophet. His own dad didn't think him worthy enough to be invited to stand before the prophet that there might have been an outside chance that it might have been him that God had in mind. And yet it says in the passage that as David passed before Samuel, uh, God said to the prophet, this is the one. And David was anointed as the next king. So nothing's changed in thousands of years. Even the prophet of God blew it. Without specific instruction, he still looked at the externals in deciding who to choose. And it wasn't unique for David. This didn't happen just one time. If you read on the next couple chapters, David is dismissed a lot. He shows up when the Philistines are lined up against the nation of Israel across the valley to bring food for his brothers. And he goes out and his brother gets angry with him and says, what are you doing here? Go back and tend the sheep. He gets dismissed. You have no place here. This is after he's already been anointed king, by the way. His brother's been part of that experience and he still gets dismissed. And then in the story, when he goes out and he confronts Goliath, what does Goliath say? What am I, a dog that you send a boy out here with sticks and stones? Basically, he felt felt like he'd been disrespected because David went out to meet him. See, David wasn't the first string. David wasn't the A squad. He wasn't chosen to be on anyone's team except God's. The only team, by the way, that really matters at the end of the day. See, society is going to tell you you are not acceptable just the way you are. Society says you can't do the things that you dream about. But God says differently. See, God says, I chose you. God says, I chose you to do this special thing for me. I created you uniquely for this. God says you need to go for it if he's asked you to do it. So, we're learning a lesson here, that God chose each one of us. I hope you get that loud and clear. The second thing, though, is we know from the passage, God is not impressed by appearances. We're way too impressed, by the way, in our culture with appearances. See, if we use the logic that if you're the prettiest and the most well-connected, if we were to adapt that logic to how we run things, then the Hollywood crowd should be running the country right now nothing scares me more than that idea by the way because behind the beauty the money and the fame is a parade of destructive lifestyles you know think charlie sheen and lindsay lohan and miley cyrus and britney spears and the 26 nfl players who've been arrested so far this year 
So money and physical attributes do not equate with being necessarily being equipped to lead or to be used effectively. These people missed the boat. Society wants to choose up winners and losers, but not based on objective criteria, based on superficial things. And our passage says, God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at what? He looks at the heart. He looks at our hearts. So any of you ever uh, watch a show on TV, this little TV show called America's Got Talent? Anybody? I asked in the first one. Nobody wants to admit. It's a guilty pleasure, I, I know. Okay. Um, I like the show because every contestant on the show is a surprise waiting to happen, either a train wreck or... Um, but every, every contestant's a surprise. And I remember a few years ago, um, someone sent me a, a YouTube link, and they said, you have to watch this. And so I clicked on the link because... I don't always open them, but if someone sends it to me and it's highly recommended, I usually manage to find myself there. Anyway, I, I clicked on, and it was Britain's version of the show, Britain's Got Talent. And there's this guy, and he walks out, and, he's, and they asked him his name, and he said, my name is Paul Potts. And they asked him what he did, and he said he sold cell phones. And he was a middle-aged, overweight guy, balding, all the rest of it. I resemble that kind of description, so that shouldn't be a disqualifier. But he walked out and they said, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to sing opera. And I remember the camera panning the audience and people were laughing, snickering. And they panned the judges and they were rolling their eyes. Anybody see the clip? The music started to play. And what happened? The most beautiful sound. Oh, just incredible. And then in other seasons, we got people like Susan Boyle and Jackie Ivanko and people like that who came through and lots of others. Based on society's way of choosing, they would have never been given a chance. They would have never had a chance. And yet each one of them were extremely talented. See, the most unlikely people are destined to surprise this world. Hope you get that. Mother Teresa was a Carmelite nun who saw the pain in New Delhi, India, and she went there to try to care for those who were suffering. Simple thing, she was a nobody. She wasn't looking for fame and attention. She just went to do what she knew was the call of God on her life. Now everyone on the earth knows who Mother Teresa is. And that story gets repeated over and over and over because God doesn't choose the way we choose. See, little David got chosen by God the most unlikely of choices for king, yet the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. Now, if you know David's story, was David perfect? Not even close. David made a lot of big mistakes, but God still chose him and uses him. And there's more written about David in the Old Testament than any other character. There's 57 New Testament references, at least at my count, up to David as well. So, by the way, if you were going to write this as an apologetic for the Christian faith, that you wanted to make sure that people understood that this amazing God and the perfection of his creation, you want to prove this to be true, you sure wouldn't include the characters that are in this book. Because it's a band of misfits. All the people that God chose to use. Let me give you some examples. Moses was chosen by God to lead the nation of Israel out of captivity, to go to Pharaoh and speak on their behalf. And it says that Moses had a speech impediment. He had trouble speaking publicly. 
We know from the Bible that Jacob was a liar, that Abraham and Sarah were too old, that Timothy suffered from ulcers, that Paul didn't speak well, and according to Scripture, wasn't much to look at. Naomi was a widow. Jonah ran away from God. Mary and Joseph were poor and grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. Thomas doubted. Martha was a worrier. Peter was a knucklehead. Miriam was a gossip. Joseph a bragger. John the Baptist didn't dress right and he ate really weird food. Matthew was a hated tax collector. The majority of the disciples were uneducated laborers and fishermen. See, God is not impressed by your resume. He's not impressed by appearances. God doesn't choose the way we choose. The passage again says, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? Our hearts. And by the way, God still chooses the same way today. He still looks at our hearts. And I want you to know that even if you don't recognize it, you're a called individual. God's already chosen you. Some of you maybe haven't come to grips with that yet, but you will. God will catch up with you, but you are all chosen individuals. Os Guinness wrote in his book, The Call, he said to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a called person, a follower of the way. See, Jesus calls you and I to be his followers, to make a difference in the world, and he doesn't choose you because you're tall or athletic or because you grace a magazine cover. He may, but that's not the criteria he uses. He doesn't, God doesn't look at life's lottery in terms of who has what to decide how he's going to further the kingdom. He chose each of you to be followers of his because you're, you're you. I said in the first service, this is true. If you are not you, if, if you try and be like everyone else, there's a gap here. A hole where you're supposed to be. And no one else can fill it. And so that's true in the church. It's out in the world as well. Because I don't care if you're a doctor or a lawyer, a plumber, whatever you do for a living, God expects you to represent Him in that place as well as this place. That's what it means to be called. William Tyndale wrote this. He said, if our desire is to please God, then pouring water or washing dishes or making shoes and preaching the word, he said, all is one. It's all one. See, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters who you do it for. It matters who you do it for. So whatever your role is in the world, as long as you're doing it for God, God can use that, redeem it, and and bless others through you. Bishop Tom... Thomas Bacon wrote this, he said, Our Savior Christ was a carpenter, his apostles fisherman. St. Paul was a tent maker. So the school janitor and the guy who fills the potholes in the road, store clerk, doctors, contractors, executives, plumbers, homemakers, whatever your role, God chooses us to be followers of his, and he chooses to use us just the way we are. Just the way we are. Because when we get that right, by the way, we begin to believe that and internalize it, We are available to God. Maybe for the first time when we realize that God has a unique call on your life, He doesn't want you to be someone else. He doesn't want you to look like the model on the magazine cover. That's not you. You don't have to try and be what you're not. See, when you begin to believe that God has you right where He wants you, your attitude begins to change. 
And when your attitude changes, your beliefs follow your attitudes, right? And when your beliefs begin to change, guess what happens next? Your behavior begins to change. And people around you, by the way, are going to notice when that happens, and their lives are going to get changed. But it all starts with us embracing who we are, understanding that God created us for a purpose, that he wants you to be who you are. He's not asking us to be what we're not. Everything we do is an act of worship. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. So to envy someone else's position, possessions, or whatever, is to miss the point. That where you are is where God wants you to be. No one else can fill that role. Friends, God looks at our hearts. I want to reinforce that again. God looks at our hearts. Now, if you've been told that you're not good enough, you've been chosen last in life too many times, and you look in the mirror and you realize, I am never going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated or Vogue or whatever, pick the magazine. Maybe you felt like you didn't fit in. See, David was the runt of the litter. He was overlooked. Again, even his own dad. I mean, how, how bad is that when your own father kind of dismisses you out of hand or just forgets you? But God had a plan for David, and David became an amazing king because God knew David's heart. He knew what was there. David went on to be the greatest king Israel ever had. So this average guy becomes something great because God chose him. And so God had to remind even the very prophet of God, again, don't consider the appearance, don't consider the outside, because God is looking for something else. So we might judge ourselves, or maybe other people have judged you in life. Maybe there are people who have looked at you and they've judged you. I want you to know the only judgment that matters is God's. The only judgment that matters is God's. See, we judge ourselves on all these externals, and, and I, know we do, I know we try hard not to, but we do. Let's be honest about it. We, we always are living our lives by comparison. It's, it's a nature of things. And again, there are people out there who will feed that if you let them. But when you compare, live your life by comparison, I want to contend you lose yourself. You lose yourself. You forget who you are. You forget that there's a unique person here who brings certain gifts and abilities and passions all in one package that no one else has. That you are you. And if you're trying to be like someone else, something is missing. Our true worth, our gifts, and the reality that we fill a singular place in God's world get lost. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. Because if everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. So it's a, it's a, it becomes this competitive thing that we feel we have to outdo one another. But peace is found in embracing who you are, where you live, what you do, and the circumstances you're in. See, the highest and most important call that God could place on your life is embracing who you are, right where you are, and not trying to be something else. And by the way, congregation, you're here and you're all together for a reason, because every one of you fills a place in this body. Because guess what happens? When you're not here, there's a hole, a 
a gap that no one else can fill because no one else is you. And Scripture is pretty clear about this. In 1 Corinthians 12, 22 to 25, we're told those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The parts we think less honorable we treat with special honor. God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there would be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. So everyone here fills a role. We don't need a hundred noses. We, we need all the parts, and we need them all functioning together if this body is going to have the impact in this community and beyond that you're dreaming about and hoping for and that I believe God has in store for you. God needs you to be you. The church needs you to be you. Your community and your workplace need you to be you. There's a Russian proverb. I have a son who's a Russian linguist in the Air Force, and, and um, I can't do it in Russian because he taught it to me, but I, I'll never get it out. But Russian proverb, translated, it says this, If I try to be like him, who will be like me? If I try to be like him, who will be like me? I hope you get what that's saying. We, we need to embrace our uniqueness because God has a plan for us. Compared with his brothers and with King Saul, just about anyone else, David was forgettable. But God saw the size of David's heart and the size of David's faith. So God's looking at your heart and he's looking at my heart and he's chosen us to live for him, to accomplish a task that no one else can accomplish. So I want to, I'm just going to pause for a second here because I want you to embrace that concept. This is going to be the hardest thing you do is to kind of deprogram yourself from what culture has programmed us all. You know, to, to when we watch those ads to say, not me, I'm not buying into the, the program that they're trying to promote. For us to separate ourselves and say, I am who God intends for me to be. And I'm going to be the best me that I can be for God. See, I, I, I love this story, and again, this isn't biblical, I'm just hypothesizing. But So when Jesus ascended to heaven, after his resurrection, he was with the disciples for a season, and then he ascended into heaven, he's gone. And he's in heaven, and I can imagine the angels gathered around him, and they're saying, Jesus, now what? And Jesus looking down at this huddled group of frightened people who, who were afraid of being killed, who uh, knew that persecution was coming their way, and Jesus pointing and going, right there, that's, that's the plan. They're going to transform the world. And I can imagine at that split second, the angels looking at Jesus with eyes probably this big around and going, okay, what's plan B? And Jesus looking back at him and going, there is no plan B. We're it. See, we've been chosen, each one of us, called. We use that language because I believe it's a call to transform the world, to change, to bring change. And the only way it's going to happen is if you fully embrace who you are, who God made you to be. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. This is from the message, which is a paraphrase of Scripture. I want you to listen to the words, though. I think it's important. It says this, Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, 
not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? He chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. Because who does God use? Who does God choose? He chooses and uses unique, gifted people to accomplish his best in this world. And I'm, I'm in a room full of extraordinary people who God has chosen to use. So no longer, by the way, do you get to... Uh, when people ask you what you do, I don't care whether here in the church or out there in the community, you, you do not get to say this, I'm just. And if you catch one another... Uh, starting a sentence that way, I want you to stop them and make them remove the just from that statement. There is no just. What you do is important. Who you are is important to one another and to the world who needs it. Your status and value rest in Christ, not in this world. I'm going to say that again. Your status and your value rest in who you are and Jesus Christ, not in this world, See, David stepped up and did big things for God, overlooked by everyone, but David became a man of God who brought change to his world at that time. And God has chosen each of you. So I believe that every person sitting in this room is a hero, a leader, a life changer. Did you know, by the way, this is just a sidebar, and I'm going to wrap up here, but that the, the most introverted person Statistics say will influence 10,000 people in their lifetime. So we're world changers. So will you answer the call? Will you answer the call? Will you embrace who you are and live fully for Christ and, and learn to be uniquely you? Because again, if I try to be like someone else, who will be like me? Would you pray with me, please? Father God, um, Lord, help us to embrace who you made us to be. To know that you loved us and formed us even before the world began, because you had a plan and a purpose for us. That there's no just in your economy that you look at each one of us and you see your child, you see your beloved. You see people who you, on whom you have placed a unique call. If it's to greet someone at the store as they walk in with a smile, it may be the only smile, Lord, that that person gets, so help us to give it our best. Lord, I, I pray that, um, Lord, you would be at work in our lives to learn to embrace the reality and not the lie of who you intend for us to be. So we're grateful for this day, grateful for your word, which brings us hope and life and truth, and that you care enough to speak to us through it and to remind us just how much you really do love us and care for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.